Welcome to an episode of Leah and the Internet. I hope you enjoy the show. Leah and the Internet is a show featuring rotating guests who discuss the impact the internet has on the world. So who's Leah Devin Sorrentino? I'm an artist, currently living in San Francisco. My longtime friend and comic book artist, Robert James Algio, details the impact that binge-watching, consuming, and developing have on the internet's present and future. This episode has everything, making a murder banter, football, and big fat websites. So I have Robert James Algio with me on Skype. I call him Bob because we've been friends for a long time. How long have we been friends, Leah? <laughs> uh, by my calculations, it's been 14 years. Yeah, I think it goes all the way back to before uh, the first midterms of the Bush administration, which is pretty cool. It definitely does, because when he was getting reelected, which was a complete anomaly to me at the time, I pissed off a mutual friend of ours named Dustin Haversum by jokingly <laughs> saying that I was going to vote for Bush in Pennsylvania. Our good friend Dustin, that is his real name. I was, once <laughs> acu- I was once accused at our college newspaper of having invented a pseudonym for myself when I would let him write articles. So anyway, 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 so, D-Man, uh, good to see you. So where can people find you online? Uh, sure, they can find my comics at uh, inabsentiapress.com. It's spelled like it sounds and then they can find me on twitter at at rjalgio uh, dot twitter you're the first person i think to ever say dot twitter good let's, <laughs> let's keep it that way we are not the first people however to see the show making a murderer and i will preface to anybody listening to the podcast i don't know that there's going to be spoilers as of yet but i'm going to guess there's going to be spoilers so if you have not seen the show in its entirety or care about things like that this is the time to skip ahead. So yeah, country is obsessed with this particular show. Yeah, because I think it strikes me, there's a whole number of reasons why it's good, why it's great, why it's so fascinating. Probably, I think the most important is that everyone was able to watch the entire thing while avoiding their family uh, over Christmas vacation. I know that that's what me and my wife did so that we didn't have to speak to each other during the you know entire <laughs> cabin fever experience. The same thing, I, I was actually sick over the holidays, me and uh, my significant other, and we power watched it, we couldn't stop. It was amazing yeah. storytelling. I think that I didn't anticipate the amount of reaction that it was gonna have online. Like I assumed that with amongst most of my friends because it's you know we're of a digital age love netflix love intellectual shows that most of our friends were going to be talking about it i didn't think that it was going to go into such depths with like everybody to the point where nancy grace of fox news who probably never watched it it became like a national news story again yeah i think there's uh, this kind of thing happens in uh I think there's sort of two things. One is I, uh, it seems to me that people are still underestimating the power of the binge watch. That to us, that still feels like a very new idea that suddenly an entire season of a show, something we're used to seeing week to week, just kind of drops in our lap. Even though it's hap- it's been happening for, I guess, four or five years, whenever the first House of Cards came out or something like that. Sure. And, I, and I think that that allows the impact to be a lot more powerful at the outset. And it, it forces media organizations to kind of chase it a little bit. 
And also too, it's it's a product. It's like this cultural event. And so of course, you know, new shows are going to try to kind of latch on to that and garner whatever ratings they can. I mean, I know for me personally, the person whose opinion I wanted to know the most was Nancy Grace's. I, <laughs> I find her to be so considered and thoughtful and, and engaging on these topics. And so to me, once she spoke out, that that to me is when the story ended. I mean, I can kind of now back away a little bit. <laughs> I brought up Nancy Grace and I thought it was interesting is that this series is incredibly political. What people latched on, in my opinion, online was the more emotional story, but that Nancy Grace took it as a way to create politics around a show where its intention was maybe to show a fractured justice system. And she has like taken up this torch of condemning Stephen Avery of, of being guilty of this crime. Yeah. And it, I wonder how far from the intentions of the, the documentarians that the intention of the, the piece has just escaped them, right? I think it's a great documentary. I think it's a great documentary series. I think that, wow, of course you can make the argument that it has a certain bias. That's, that's kind of the point. You know, it's it's not journalism, you know, for lack of a better expression. Sure. And so there's lots of different themes and, and facets in the work. It, it seems to me the main idea was not whether or not Stephen Avery was guilty, but to sort of demonstrate that, you know, the search for justice in America is not the same thing as the search for truth. I think that Dad Bod Hottie Dean Strang actually says that in <laughs> the documentary. And, but... <laughs> but what ends up happening is like most people seem to look at it more like it's it's an investigation and it's and you're supposed to leave understanding whether or not Stephen Avery did what he's accused of doing and and because that's a much easier thing like you said to have an emotional reaction to you're either angry that an innocent man is in jail or you are angry that the documentarians had the audacity to try to assist a criminal. And it's like, I think the truth is actually much harder to deal with, which is that it's it's an imperfect system that doesn't do what it says it sets out to do. Yeah. I think that's what the documentary highlights. It's just easier to talk about the emotional stuff. Well, and that's where I think that the way that this documentary has been perceived and experienced because you could binge watch it, because it streamed, because it was uh, directed to online communities, internet-wise, the way we participate with one another hasn't gotten to like that sophisticated critical level where we could have an open conversation about the things that would actually impact us as individuals, which is the, the broken justice system. Yeah. And I think that's why that at first, everything that I saw about making a murderer was very serious. Like people outpouring and then it went from serious to emotional mm -hmm. and then it went from emotional to a joke and then yeah. that's like from there is where you saw things like i shared with you the the hairstyles of making a murderer and you uh, apparently are very into dean strang the strang for <laughs> <laughs> tumblr that takes screenshots from the show and then puts like funny captions and essentially memes out the whole 10 hour documentary i at first wanted to think like this shows an immaturity of how we participate with one another online but thinking about it more in terms of that idea of not being able to cope with larger issues that this is why these type of jokes and memes start to manifest it's easier for people to downplay the significance that the information they're receiving has on their day-to-day -day lives to just making fun of somebody's teased out hair. What the internet I think does is puts everybody's voice on an even playing field, mm -hmm. but there still needs to be this way that 
we can collectively put people down. And I think it's interesting that it's a white guy. I told my mom about this documentary and the first thing that she said when I said about somebody being wrongly accused is she asked me if he was black or white. And when I said that he was white, she's like, oh, because if he was black, he wouldn't have had a chance, right? He, this would have never been made into anything. Nobody would have ever revisited this. Sure. And I think what this shows is that it's there's also like a class issue that you're targeted based off of how educated you are, how what's your means, where's your status and I think that everybody making fun of like the hairstyles of making a murderer still allows people to even though the concepts of the documentary are very targeted to anybody participating in our legal system I think highlighting the class and the demographic and the rural nature of everybody in this documentary allows people to disassociate themselves as being able to participate in something like this, right? They're like, this couldn't happen to me because this happens to these kind of people, not me. Oh, sure. I mean, there's definitely that element. It, it sort of is, um, you know, the documentary it presents a glimpse into a world or into several worlds that most people don't see or experience. Well, I mean, I don't mean to say most people because there's obviously more poor people in the world than not, but um, there's sort of this, there's like a, there's a certain level of voyeurism there that allows people to, like you said, kind of disassociate. And then there is this sort of like, you know, no, no pun intended, but there's a certain kind of like gallows humor to the way people have reacted as well. And and I think part of that is sort of a coping mechanism. Um, I mean, you, you can see, you know, in the way people are, are being treated online, the, the police are, are being treated as if there are they're these like consummate villains. Sure. There are these like evil individuals. And I suspect that's probably not truly the case. And, and then, you know, you know, the lawyers and, and the family members are sort of being treated as, um, you know, heroes or, you know, um, unduly attacked victims and things like that. And, and, you know, there's a huge hole at the center of all of this, which is the actual death, you know, the actual murder. And then that sort of seems to not come up in a lot of the coverage. And I, it seems to me that that's exactly what you're talking about is, is people don't want to, they don't want to believe that it can happen to them uh, any part of this story so they, they treat it as if it's fiction almost i think that the way that this has been sensationalized it's taken it from factual story to just pop cultural phenomena i view making a murderer almost as a spectacle now and mm -hmm. to go back to why i originally introduced nancy grace is that it's like a dog and pony show in all forms, the way that tumblers have spun up about particular characters, the way news outlets have focused on to where they got the president involved in trying to give a pardon. It's amazing how many communities have been created around this show, but then also that is it the only way that the American public can talk about something is if it's like sensationalized to a point where it's oversaturating. I, I think it may even be worse than that. And it's that we don't want to confront these issues unless it's presented as a television show. I mean, this story existed for decades, right? That you know, the, the trial that's focused on in the documentary is 10 years old and it didn't gain any traction until it was sort of like, you know, a suppository into our brain in the vessel of a, of a TV program, something, you know, a, a way of consuming stories that we understand. And that's, I don't know how I feel about that. I, I mean, on the one hand, it's sort of like, I guess it's good that people are thinking about this case at all. But on the other hand, it's like, do we really need Netflix to guide 
guide us to these moral epiphanies. I don't know if Netflix necessarily guided. I think that it introduced the content. But the reason sure. that I was drawn to Making a Murderer is that people kept posting about it online. I will say that it seemed more grassroots in terms of like, it's not like the Super Bowl, right? This one I'm sorry, do you, do you mean the big game? The big, yes, excuse me. Yeah. I don't just... want you to get sued by the NFL. <laughs> It wasn't presented spectacle uh, like that. So I don't necessarily know if it's like Netflix is the one that's spoon feeding this, but, and maybe there is something powerful. Maybe I'm talking myself out of my own original complaint of- the well, that, That's the sign of a curious mind. Yeah. <laughs> the reason that, that this has spread so quickly is more word of mouth, right? It's sure. just the, our word of mouth all has microphones because it can go out into the ether of the internet and anybody can pick up on it. And it creates like a collective conversation. And I've talked a lot about how Twitter in particular has manifested like different social uh, communities, like social mm -hmm. impact, like, but it's also completely revolutionized things like this, where there is a television show or a pop cultural event. I think where we both probably have a problem is that this very concrete real issue has now become a pop culture event. Yeah, it's, it's, that's creaky. That's messy and, and challenging. And I guess what you hope is that eventually some good can come out of it. And, and maybe we're finally at a point where like pop culture can truly affect change. You know, and maybe we're at that sort of inflection point. I, I don't really know. But yeah, it's, yeah, I agree with everything you just said, Leah, even though you disagreed with yourself. <laughs> there's some art, you know, there's some links that you shared with me that kind of indicate communally we might be heading to a point where pop culture can unveil some of these more socially impactful things that happen to us. But I think that we're not at that point yet. And the links that you shared with me about the Steelers versus Bengals low point in the NFL indicate that to me. Do you want to explain a little bit about what happened in that game and why? Yeah, I'll, I'll dive in, but maybe you can help me out here. I mean, it's my understanding that this podcast is marketed to like a pretty elite, erudite intellectual audience. <laughs> so um, so foot, football is a game that takes place on a field. That field is... <laughs> A hundred yards. There are two teams. Each team is allowed to have a left middle. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna stop you here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, you get four tries to move 10 yards, and then you get another okay, four tries. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, so anyway, there was, um, I guess this was the AFC. Uh, I hope you AFC. get hate mail. I hope you it get my <laughs> first hate mail. <laughs> well, good. Well, I would, I mean, every podcast needs a great villain, as Serial has taught us, right? I don't think they identified a good villain there. They didn't identify a villain in Serial. Wait, are, you think Adnan's innocent? Anyway, I... that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. So it was the uh, AFC wildcard game, uh, Steelers versus Bengals, and um, I watched the game in real time and and there it was a, it was as far as football goes a pretty ugly game uh lots of unsportsmanlike conduct lots of questionable calls you know uh you had players coming off the bench fighting with coaches and but referees nothing, and stuff and nothing that historically the nfl has not seen in a game particularly an eagles game oh yeah no i i mean there wasn't a single battery thrown at this game right so it's hardly sort of a to me at least watching it did not seem like a new threshold of uh, vitriol in the NFL. To the point where but when you shared these links, I, I didn't exactly know what the low point was. Well, yeah. And then once, you know, I went home and then I was sort of just reading highlights about the games and I saw, you know, Facebook post after Facebook post, tons of Twitter tweets, uh, and tons of uh, articles talking about how this game was a low point in the NFL that like that the sport has sunk 
so far from its, you know, moral highs that it, it was unconscionable that this was even allowed to have happened. And, you know, what really struck me was how angry the commentators were about the game. They were blaming the players, the refs, tons of people blaming the fans as if the NFL doesn't exist to work them up into a frenzy in any case. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to me, the weirdest part was all this sort of moralizing and, um, you know, uh, looking down upon this game and it, it, it completely devoid of the context of all of the very famous, um, you know, off-field player conduct cases from the last, I don't know, two uh, years. five, you can ten just, years. Yeah, you can just narrow in on the last two years. And this is where, to go back to why I don't think that online communities talking about popular content or popular culture uh, necessarily is bringing about the social movements that we need to see from that content. Because collectively, when things like this happen in the NFL or in other pop culture phenomena, we start getting very myopic as a group online talking about this one thing and we forget everything that's happened prior. And it's not a reflective space yet. It's like still too present to be critical about what has previously happened. You would think that the minute somebody was like, this is a low point in the NFL, there would be a combatant. What are you talking about? Ray Rice beat his wife on video. <laughs> like, yeah. not it's not that big of a deal that people threw plastic bottles at a player. It's shitty. Don't get yeah. me wrong. But it doesn't show a lack of awareness within these online communities. Yeah, I think it. I think it shows an enormous uh, a lack of awareness. I think it also demonstrates um, because of the way the speed of culture has accelerated. You know, stories enter the headlines and leave the headlines incredibly fast because there's so much content to consume and available to us now. Um, I think what kind of happens too in, in commentary and in reportature, everything must be the most of the thing it represents. So yeah. it's not enough that a writer could say, well, that was a really bad game. It has to be the worst game of all time. It's it's not enough that Star Wars is a good movie. It needs to be the best sci-fi movie ever, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. And, and I think that can be really damaging and degrading to subtlety and, and to nuance and to appreciation for reality, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I think that it shows that traditional media hasn't caught up to the way communication and that media spread to its communities and audience. You think about the reason... We started talking about like the streaming binge nature of making a murderer created a lot of the momentum and traction that did yeah. bring about a bunch of different ways that this story could be told. Eventually, it, it got to the point where it lifted to traditional media like news outlets, newspapers. And that's where I feel that the story became sensationalized, not necessarily mm -hmm. at the, the introduction of the content. It sure. was once it got to the point where how do traditional news outlets capitalize on this? How can they stay competitive with the information? And I think that they're using the internet as a broadcast tool of manipulation, like you're talking about, where they're extrapolating the actual scenario or reality and they're interjecting sensationalism to stay competitive amongst themselves. When you talk about, um, you know, the amount of, you know, something trending or something, something being, you know, popular on a particular social media network, 
it almost doesn't matter what the coverage is like as long as the coverage is there. And the quality of coverage and commentary seems to not matter. It just simply the the volume in, in the truest sense, how much there is of it, seems to be like, like the prime indicator. And I guess it behooves you as commentator to get in on that. You don't want to be the only person to not levy an opinion about this football game, you know. Um, but sometimes it seems like a, an opinion doesn't need to be expressed in every case, but there's an incentive against not having an opinion, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You're saying that there's an incentive to not have an opinion for who? I'm sorry, I may have misspoke. I meant to say that there there's no incentive to not have an opinion. It doesn't behoove you to have people come in and say, oh, well, you know, I see the point, but it doesn't seem like a big deal. That would not help your ratings. It would not help your click-through rate. It would not help your page views. Yeah. So what has to happen is that you have to blow up and expand your opinion to get people to, to notice, I guess. Well, and it's because everybody knows that the reach and how the internet can work and connect to people that not saying something, like you're saying, is at a detriment to being a part of the conversation. It's like this fear, like FOMO, it's like the fear of missing out, (laughs) right? Oh, I missed my opportunity to express an opinion about the AFC wildcard game. What am I doing with my life? Seriously, uh, because if you, it's like if you don't say something, it's like you're taking a stance and condoning behavior. It's not that you're just not wanting to participate in the conversation or don't find the conversation valuable or valid for your news outlet or for your blog. It's that not saying something means that you are be a passive participant and then essentially condoning or agreeing with the situation. So if you don't condemn the Steelers versus Bengals game, as a news organization, it's like you're saying that you're fine with the conduct, but rather than taking a stance of, okay, let's put this in light of the whole history of the NFL over the past half decade, this is a very minimal altercation in the light of Adrian Peterson's child abuse scandal. I think that this is where I expect like more participation of people online to pick up some of that slack or kind of change that course. You do see it in, I feel like in some areas, online participation in like Twitter and Facebook and all that is dictating more how news outlets are functioning rather than them dictating how crowds will work. Like with the Mm -hmm. recent Oscar announcements, I think that the backlash to the Oscar announcements have gotten more attention now than the actual announcements about how the Oscars are being whitewashed. And I don't think before the introduction of the internet that that type of criticality would exist. I just don't know how introspective we are as a group in the moment. Or there's also been a current of a conversation about racial equality. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if like, if there wasn't so many moments that have happened over the past year to show that inequality, that if the conversation about like the Oscars, let's say, would have happened. I don't know how many times maybe the NFL has to be put in a certain light for the same type of criticality to happen or any issue like how many serials and making a murderer and documentaries that show a broken justice system have to happen before online like smaller online communities actually have a larger voice in the conversation or are they ever making up that larger voice and they're actually still dictated by only big interjections into our society yeah i mean that that makes sense to me sometimes it's really tough to have these kind of conversations for me because my view on my media platforms is very directed right we're both i would say pretty liberal people 
and we have that type of information constantly coming at us, it's kind of rare that I'm going to see like on my Facebook page, something contrarian to like Bernie Sanders, or it's pretty yeah. rare in my Twitter, even my Twitter feed that I'm going to see something that's 10 reasons you should vote for Ted Cruz. I'm not in a position where I'm not hearing just the stuff that pertains to my interest and my beliefs. So sometimes I think like, oh my God, we're making all these strides. And and then there's like the reality of, well, is this just because of the constant data that's collected about my interest that I'm getting thrown back at me? And I'm actually always in a dictated path. There's no autonomy. It's like an illusion. We tend to feel and think that social media has deepened our access to culture and opinion, but I think sometimes it, to me, feels like it's actually, it's widened it, but it's incredibly shallow because, you know, the Twitter and Facebook and, and Tumblr, they want you to engage and people engage with sites when they like the content. It's, it's almost as if we should force people to like, we should start a website called Hate Book. <laughs> and it only like and, and 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 they have to visit that like you know for every hour you spend on Facebook you have to spend the 15 minutes on hate book and they only show you stuff you disagree with that way you can kind of get a more even keel in terms of what's actually happening but I mean ostensibly I come from nerd culture you know like I like I I'm old enough that I can remember a time where the only place you could hear about comic book characters would be in like Wizard magazine right and, <laughs> yeah. and so and, and so for me it's like the internet is great because I you know, as I've gotten older, I've come to realize, oh, you know, I, you know, you know, I may have felt like an isolated nerd in like junior high, but now I feel like, oh, there's this whole world of bald bearded dudes my age who love all the same shit that I do. And that's, that's incredible, right? <laughs> but it's like, absolutely, did, the internet didn't, didn't create those people. Those people were always there. It's just now that they're more visible and visibility matters. That's incredibly important. Yeah. I think that that's one of the greatest achievements of the internet. Yeah, but that, that doesn't change the fact that there are probably still, you know, 280 million Americans who think I'm a huge nerd. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's like, like sure. where's the line between what I, I think is happening culturally because of what I see online and what is actually happening? Yeah, it's you have more visibility into people who have the same opinion, but they, they always did. And that's where I think that the internet becomes a slight delusion in terms of, and I've talked about this a lot about the power of being able to find people who are like you and being able to access like-minded people. But then it starts, your view starts to narrow and narrow that you forget that you are still part of a minority. You just yeah. have more people that you can associate with. Like, I love the comedy to Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julia Newmar. Never heard of yeah. it. Uh, you have heard of it. I've made you watch it. Please I, I, don't lie on this I've podcast. Never, I have never seen it. <laughs> But I found rarely somebody who also found that to be their favorite comedy. I could type that into the internet right now and find at least 400 tumblers of all people who think that Wesley Snipes and Drag is the funniest thing that they've ever seen. It is the funniest thing that you've ever seen. But... It, it makes me feel funny. I don't know if it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I, you can't help to be attracted to Wesley Snipes and Drag. I get it. <laughs> He's... I, well, I, I always bet on him, you know what I mean? <laughs> But then I also think about like now I'm manip I've manipulated myself online because I've only searched out and looked for things that I find of interest. And yeah. you sent me this link and this seems like an odd segue, but the idea of how sites are now organizing themselves to gather more data about its users to then project the type of content that people would want to see. So then people interact with the website more or the social media platform more. 
starts to create uh, a density to the internet that people that participate online do not speak of. And you talked about this website obesity crisis, or the article does that you shared with me. I think that that's a conversation that people should be more aware of, or like what are the implications of Facebook being able to tailor itself to you and designing itself to tailor itself to individual users. There's cases of Facebook actually testing their algorithms by feeding, occasionally they would feed you stuff they knew you would disagree with and see how much that affects your usage. And so I, I don't bring that up to sound conspiratorial, but I, I bring that up to demonstrate that we tend to think of website tracking as being like, oh, Amazon wants to know what I'm searching for so it can feed me ads, or this website wants to know what I've watched in the past so that it can um, suggest videos to me or yeah, something like presented as a useful tool. But it, it goes so much deeper than that because literally like the, the raw content you consume is now being fed to you based on what you've done in the past, assuming you like it. And it's, in some ways I think that's great and that's very useful. But you know, the big promise of the internet way back in the dial-up days was that you would be able to find and confront opinions and ideas that you had never even considered. And now it seems like all this technology is being leveraged to do the exact opposite of that. And you know, it's. I think we still have to figure out what that means in terms of how we use these tools to try to affect change and to try to make a more sort of even representative society. Well, and you were talking to me before we started recording about it's not just the dangerous path of going down only essentially creating your own conformity in terms of being able to not ever challenge yourself. And instead of this being a, the internet being a useful tool of investigation and discovery, it becomes a place of complacency and mindlessness. But there's also by these websites trying to use different algorithms and data to manipulate its users, there's also a fiscal impact that's eventually going to trickle down to all of its users. Sure. So, I mean, basically, back in the olden days, uh, the maybe olden you, days. Were, you were trolling an X-Files message board to talk about the latest episode, and you would, you know, fire up AOL and go to the, the forum you were basically only downloading the data that needed to display the content you were looking for. But as web browsing technology has changed, now so much of what you at your computer actually downloads when you visit a site has nothing to do with that site's content, but it's all tracking information. It's all web analytics information. And, and there are costs associated with that. And the basic way to think about it is, let's say you pay, I don't know, uh, $70 a month for your high-speed at-home internet access. And then if you just divide that number by how many sites you visit, that's how much it costs you to download each site. But it can very quickly get to the point where there's so much extra stuff that gets downloaded to keep track of you and to um, sort of study where you've gone and where you're going on the internet, that that can actually increase the, the cost of internet. And it makes the internet ultimately less accessible uh, because it becomes a purely fiscal matter of how much electricity do we need to move all this extra data that the user isn't actually asking for. I've talked about this a lot about how right now we are at this point where technology in terms of devices that can get online, mobile phones, have plummeted, right? And it's created an accessibility to the internet 
to a class, like a lower class of people. I remember when uh, people first started getting computers and the internet, it was not everybody, right? Mm -hmm. I remember in sixth grade, like one kid had an at-home computer because they were expensive. Like a desktop was $3,000 and then you paid per minute and Mm -hmm. everything has gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And we're at this point where if we don't address what you're talking about, this is gonna create another class divide in accessibility of information. And at this point, where before, when people just had the $3,000 desktop and the internet wasn't so ingrained and intrinsic to our day-to-day lives and operations as it is right now. And it's only going to become more inundated into our lives. There's going to be a point where it's like, think about how often do you carry cash? That's the- What's that? Yeah, Uh, it used to be this thing that we would, it was made of paper and we would trade it for goods and services. We now compress that all into a card, but- (laughs) <laughs> Wait, so the card is made of cash? <laughs> the card holds virtual cash. I know I'm blowing your mind right now. Oh, <laughs> like uh, Ronald McDonald bucks or something like that? Exactly. Okay. Um, but the scary thing is that the way that the internet's being built is predominantly for capitalist endeavors, right? Like the reason that people want to track all of this data is because they want to be able to use this data to essentially sell you something, have you stay on your, their site longer, in some way tailor your behavior to the benefit of somebody profiting. Yeah. And at this point right now, who, like, who knows what the direct impact to users and consumers is. But at the rate that the way websites are being built is happening and the, what you just outlined, this will create a truly large class divide that you can't go back on because you've structurally made it that way. We're already yeah. in this problem. We're already in like a systemic class problem. And now our technology is going to be mirroring that, which means that we're going to be permanently entrenched in it. Well, if you, if you look out you know, sort of more globally, I, I think one thing that's tough, I mean, I, you know, I assume most of your audience is, is American, um, though that might be, you know, yeah, shitty of me to think so. Don't but, underestimate um, my reach. <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. You get a lot of uh, New Zealand listeners as well. My, my point is my, in, my in, in the developed world. So basically, I don't know what you would call like the G8 Uh, countries. You know, I think the internet happened and developed somewhat organically because those countries had an energy infrastructure, a telephone infrastructure, and a shipping infrastructure that allowed those products to evolve. But if you look at the way the internet is being deployed in the still developing world, um, there was a a famous instance, you know, Facebook was talking about giving free internet, I think, to everyone in India. Then when when, when they looked at the actual deal, Facebook said, well, it's free, but you can only visit these sites through our platform. And so it's sort of like, you know, at a certain point, you know, those types of services are going to end up in places like America because of growing income inequality. There's going to be a point where companies or the government needs to subsidize internet use because people will need it to engage with society. And so it's like, you know, the gatekeepers have just kind of found a new gate through which to control information. That is an incredibly frightening proposition. I was thinking about New York recently as replacing all of their previous, um, what's, I, telephones, payphones. What's that? I could not remember the word for payphone right now. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, but they're replacing all of their payphones with uh, Wi-Fi hotspots. Are those those, you would put those like, uh, <laughs> you would put those like metal ore discs into the device? Is that how that would work? <laughs> You would, you would get them and they would have like the faces of dead men carved into them or something like that? Yeah. Yes. 
quite archaic indeed. <laughs> but so they're be- being turned into Wi-Fi hotspots, and they were interviewing like people on the street about their opinion, and, and people were really excited. And at first, I was thinking this could be a way to really create a disruption in uh, telephone service providers. Like right now, I'm mm-hmm. incredibly tethered to my phone because that's what provides me my internet and which means I have a contractual obligation to pay a telephone provider. But if there were hotspots all over the city and I could just constantly go from Wi-Fi to Wi-Fi, I wouldn't need my telephone provider. But when you shared this article with me and throughout this conversation, thinking about the impact of, well, if this Wi-Fi is provided by government funding and we've allowed private companies to dictate how information is going to be presented to us online and the way that they're presenting it creates such a bandwidth capacity on that service eventually there's no way that there's going to be any type of sustainability to having a government funded wi-fi system that doesn't necessarily like doesn't impact taxpayers so essentially we will be paying to be for people to manipulate us into purchasing new things. Oh yeah, they're gonna get you on both ends. I I can't wait for a a nice Republican New York mayoral candidate to come out against paying for people to download their anime and hentai at the public (laughs) hotspot. That'll be a... That'd be a great moment. I mean, I, I think that this is like such a complex problem that we could talk about for a really long time. But these are the kind of conversations on Twitter and all these different communities that can rally around things like your nerddom or making a murderer or the NFL or anything in between that I don't think that everybody that's having those conversations understand what's at stake by not understanding the infrastructure that they're having the conversations on. No, you're, you're absolutely right about that. I wonder if the conversations that I have right now on this podcast that talk about this like very optimist view of the impact social media has had on culture will eventually become so minimized by something like the website obesity crisis that it'll sound like I was in some type of pipe dream. (laughs) Yeah, I I suspect that in a hundred years when people dig up these recordings, they'll they'll laugh at how quaint and uh, utopian our views were. Well, I think about this often when, do you ever use the Facebook functionality on this day or like the app time hop or anything like that, where it shows you five years worth of your social media posts? Uh, I, I don't live in the past, Lee. I live in the now. Okay. Well, as somebody who sometimes <laughs> likes to reminisce, I find that the stuff that I was posting on 2008, 2009, 2010 is so radically different than the way I participate on social media now. Now, granted, I'm also older and grow and, but what I viewed that tool for was just completely different to what it is right now. And there was many times where I thought I was being hilarious. I'm not as funny as I thought, which was very heartbreaking for me. I can confirm that. (laughs) I knew that you were going to say something. (laughs) But that's what I mean, where in terms of like in the near future, I'm hoping that I don't have to say, remember when, but being an artist and you're an artist, there's also with all of these larger concepts, I find it bewildering that the conversations around art and the internet become much more about how to be successful as an artist on the internet, how to be seen, how to be viewed Mm -hmm. as successful, and not necessarily artists having conversations that are more critical about how society participates in these systems or how artists represent themselves on these systems. And you shared with me this link called Painting in the Dark, the struggle for art in a world obsessed with popularity. And I will say that I hated the concept 
in general. Sure. <laughs> uh, in terms of like the, the article essentially was alluding like a lot of artists have made art and have not cared about the success attached to it. I can't believe that in 2016 that that even has to be a conversation. Well, I think, um, you know, my impression is that, you know, before the internet, there was this idea that artists should expect to struggle and they should expect to not find their audience until later in life, if at all. And that like, you know, the, the forgotten in his own time master painter was sort of this like artistic ideal. But now it seems that the way we talk about it with in the context of the internet is if you are not a successful artist, there's something wrong with you because you have this incredible tool at your disposal to find your audience. I think that it totally makes sense that is the proposition being pushed on artists right now, that there's no reason that you can't have success in your lifetime because you have the ability to showcase your genius. And mm -hmm. like the amount of competition that exists, if you're truly an artist, you'll be able to supersede and this is like now the type of time where unlike Van Gogh, which is an example used in the article, he didn't have the type of platform to be able to showcase himself. Mm -hmm. What I think a more important conversation is not even the idea of how do you make yourself successful. I think that the internet is an amazing platform to question the idea of how people value art in general. I was telling you before we started recording that often anytime I put out anything online and a majority of my artwork that I've made in the past year has all been disseminated through the internet, whether it's this podcast, videos, other types of artwork. And immediately, even I had a collaborative show in Chicago called Last Year on the Internet, and somebody came up to me and they were like, well, do you value this based on how many likes you get online? As if like that type of popularity can correlate to like the reason you make something, right? It's, yeah. I, I'm asked oftentimes with the podcast, like how many listeners do you have? Well, who cares? Like if I well, think this, I'm making I mean, something you, important. You can buy likes. Like you yeah. can literally pay a company, they farm out likes. So it, it's, it's, it's this weird kind of bankrupt metric if you kind of think about it. I think most of the art world has pushed itself into <laughs> a bankrupt metric. <laughs> <laughs> and the way people make art and how art is valued is so tied to what most artists say they hate, which is like this capitalist system that essentially what something like the struggle for popularity, the only reason that you're caring about popularity and visibility is because those things normally equate to money and success. But mm -hmm. if it's really about creating the artwork and having a conversation and creating a discourse, I don't understand how this is this is still important. Is art a product and has it always been a product or is there a way to make it clear to the audience that you know you want art to function as an expression of an idea or of yourself or something like that and and how to kind of like disconnect that value that sort of personal emotional value that an audience member can have with a work of art from how many people have seen it how many people have liked it because that ultimately doesn't matter at all to the audience because they don't have access to that. Like that doesn't, like, you know, you look at a painting or you visit an installation or you go see a performance, it either affects you or it doesn't. And it, it doesn't really matter whether or not a, a hundred thousand other people said they liked it. Is that, I mean, is that kind of what you're getting at? That's exactly what I'm getting at. And I think that so much of how art is valued, even historically, is tied to like its fiscal worth. Mm -hmm. And if we allow that to be the driving factor of what is deemed successful, we might as well just 
except that every product is a piece of art. Like every yeah. well-selling sneaker is a piece of art. Whoa, hold on there, Murakami. Let's not say <laughs> things we can't take back, all right? <laughs> and there's nothing like in my mind that is problematic about somebody receiving wealth over great ideas. Like, I don't think that the, the problem is, the in my mind, the compensation. It's the idea that compensation or popularity is tied to worth. To put this in perspective, I was at a show recently in my neighborhood, and all of the artwork was, um, like, Star Wars-themed. They were beautiful paintings. They were, like, graffiti-style. And, and the only thing that I could think of is what kind of dialogue is this creating what type of criticality what does somebody get from this other than being able to own something being able to yeah. own an object and the paintings were selling for the in in the thousands and most of them were sold by the end of the opening and at the end i'm sure that it was deemed as a successful show because everything was sold where that show is probably not going to have any impact on anything other than somebody spent money on it and, and it, it was involved popular things. It was the most successful Disney advertising campaign in the gallery's history. Yeah. <laughs> you also shared uh, a link to the day the clown cried. Jerry Lewis, right? Comedian? Yes. It's uh, an unseen video of his. We talked about this before we started recording of how this idea of Things that we've never seen before by people that we idolize are somehow more valuable. And yeah. I think that this all ties into this idea. It's not just popularity that drives um, somebody's value, but it's also scarcity. And this idea of since everything is so accessible now that getting to see something or experience something that uh, no one else has or will ever again becomes this other driving factor. I think that we're confusing as a as a culture the accessibility to something as on the flip side making something less valuable that's like patently true um you know if you you know if you look at like the music industry um or you look at this jerry lewis movie or you look at um you know novelists and writers and stuff it's like artwork i think is just as powerful and emotionally impactful as it's ever been but the whole financial model is getting kind of twisted. And and with respect to this Jerry Lewis movie, there's this insane fascination with this movie that he made, that he finished, but he never released because he thought it was a bad movie. Um, and he thought it was distasteful and he didn't care. But there's been a lot of writing about it's not his decision to make, that somehow you know he owes it to his audience to release this thing. And I think that that's driven by exactly what you're talking about in that you know accessibility to art and to content is sort of, it seems like people sort of see it as a their right as an audience member. And I think that that's driven by just how much pure volume of content we can consume. And it just seems like, well, we can consume everything. Why can't we have this one thing? Um, and I think that's part of where that fascination comes from. I personally think like Van Gogh and all the Impressionist painters and the Renaissance and all these things that are worth thousands and millions of dollars, like they're recognizable and they're coveted by mass audiences because they can't own it, because it's exactly. so unaccessible. 
and the the clown cried or when Michael Jackson died and they released a bunch of music that he didn't think was any good to release and this is happening to David Bowie right now where this like you're saying this right of being able to consume and this idea of well it's special because I can't have it or I couldn't have it and there's some type of like euphoric release of being able to now consume something that the artist never wanted you to have and you know I you know I'll admit as an audience member myself it's like you know when there's an artist that I care about and you know you you I don't know like there's a musician that you like and you hear the b-sides or you hear the demos or there's a you know an illustrator that you like and you sort of see illustrations that got rejected by editors and stuff like that it, there there is a, I think of there is some value to seeing that stuff from like a process standpoint but at the same time it's kind of like there's so much stuff to look at why would you want to waste your time looking at the stuff that the creator says is not what they want to show yeah that's rejected this is where i I go back to i wish that the internet had more of an impact on the way we understand and value art and i think that it goes back to how art is taught right it's usually through Mm -hmm. art history and then there's an appreciation and a reverence for like this soul genius and it's normally focused on traditional mediums and the idea that art is supposed to create a cultural impact I feel becomes lost right like if you ask a, a general population the gen pop what <laughs> what do you what do you think like what is art and I think that people will start focusing on the object and if you yeah. if you fixate on the object then the idea of visibility and access and popularity and scarcity of the object all start to become factors of its value rather than what does the object or idea actually serve? Who is it serving? I think there's sort of two things. One is, and, and this is something that started to happen, you know, well before the rise of the internet, of course, but, you know, our artists, um, you know, conceptual artists made a very concerted effort to remove art from the object. And, and they, they tried to find ways to create art and express ideas in something other than an object that you needed to be in a specific place to experience. I think also too, you know, when you're talking about how art is taught, you know, I have an MFA, so I, I mean, I basically oh, I, you know, do I have, you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a master of fine art, but it's like, you know, so I have a lot of formal art education, and I don't think at any time was there any discussion in any of my classes about emotional impact of artwork. Um, there was never any discussion about how a piece of art can affect an individual. Um, some of the higher level classes certainly talked about broader ideas beyond just sure, like, like here's how you mix paint you know but it's like there just seems to be this reticence of people to accept the like that emotional power um and i, I think that kind of ties back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier you know even with like making a mur- murderer where there's like there's this like emotional core in that piece but people simply want to raise their hand and admit that they participated in the consumption and they don't want to really get at what that thing is trying to say and I think that that kind of ties in again I, I said it before but it's because there's so much stuff to consume do we even have the time to rest with one piece of work and really think about what it means to us as an individual I think that the emotional core that you're talking about is escaping people and I think that it's an opportunity for both like online communities and art communities to really address how these systems artwork content are really helping us culturally and not necessarily something that is just consumed and then profited off of or made popular. Bob, thanks so much for coming on. Robert, as as the it, ladies call you. Uh, well, men call me that as well. I, that, my name's not gender specific. <laughs> 
Uh, one more time, where can people find you to hear more of sure. your ideas and see your awesome comics? Uh, yeah, they can uh, find my comics at inabsentiapress.com. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at RJAlgio. Thanks again, Bob. This was awesome. No, thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Share your thoughts and opinions about this episode's themes on Twitter at and the internet and on the blog at leanthetheinternet.com. You can also find the show on facebook.com slash leanthetheinternet. Are you listening to the show on iTunes? That's cool. If you don't mind, rate the show. It helps other great people like yourself find the podcast.